Thank you for tuning in. My name is Brittany, and I'm really excited that you're here to check out this new message with our current series, Redemption. Morning. There we go. We lost an hour of sleep. We got a whole bunch of stuff going on here. Should probably do some calisthenics. It's good to see everybody. My name's Stephen. If you're new around here, I'm the pastor, and I'm glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to look at that this morning uh, in week two of our series, simply titled Redemption. And uh, the aim of this series is to understand this theological term, redemption. We're going to conclude this series on Easter Sunday with this verse in Ephesians 1.7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It's a beautiful passage, and right at the heart of it is this idea of redemption. But we can't understand redemption. We can't understand what this word means if we start uh, in Ephesians. Instead, what we got to do is go all the way back to the beginning. The aim of this series is that you and I would have a good understanding of this word. So when uh, you say, I go to Redemption Church, or when you just think of the name of the church, or you uh, hear us say, everyone's invited to experience redemption, or uh, that uh, everyone has a redemption story, that that word means something to you, that experiencing redemption is much more than just showing up on a Sunday morning. So last week, we kicked it off in the beginning. Like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and God spoke creation into existence. And when uh, God did that, we pointed out last week four things that were present in the garden. We said this, that we're all on a quest to get back to the garden. The four things that were present in the garden were man in right relationship with God, Man in right relationship with each other, man in right relationship with creation, and then creation operating under God's values. Those four things were present in the garden. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, kind of a famous passage. God created them, male and female, he created them. And so God creates male and he creates female and he makes them in his image. The idea last week was that uh, every person is made in the image of God. It's why Christians value human life so much, because we see in every person, right, made in the image of God. Now, out of that, we were given a job to rule and to reign. Said another way, to live for God's glory. And the struggle of life is to figure out whose glory am I living for, mine or his, whose glory is my ultimate aim. And so last week, at least in the narrative, when we left, everything was perfect, just like your life, right? Everything was perfect. And so we left off the narrative there, and we're going to pick it up, and we do pick it up in Genesis chapter 3. And this morning, as we study Genesis 3, we're going to see three things, the tactics of sin, the consequences of sin, and God's response to it. Let me say it again, the tactics of sin the consequences of sin, and God's response to sin. So we'll see this all here in this famous passage in Genesis chapter 3. It starts off like this. Now the serpent, the serpent, up until this point, the serpent or snakes were just like every one of the other creatures. Uh, they weren't condemned. They probably had, you know, a pretty good animal life. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, the indwelling of the serpent uh, happened to the serpent, and so they get condemned for all of history. Bad luck. The serpent is clearly an animal on one level. 
And so this story is being told in two levels. On one level, there's an animal, a serpent. And uh, on the other level, the serpent is clearly something different. The serpent, it's going to go on to say, is more crafty than any other of the beasts of the field. The beasts of the field, there is a line directly tying back to Genesis chapter 1. What the author is doing is showing us the perfection of what was in Genesis chapter 1. And so in Genesis chapter 1, on day 6, God created the beasts of the field, including the serpent, and then he created man, and he put man over animal. And now the serpent, the animal, is trying to subvert God's natural order, trying to take control over humanity. And so on one level, this is why my cat Denzel bites me or scratches me, right? There is now tension that exists between man and animal. On a much deeper level, and this is why sin exists in the world, the serpent was more crafty. Fun fact. This word crafty is a Hebrew word arum, and every other time it's used in the scriptures, it's used in the positive. Often in the book of Proverbs, as in you should desire arumness, wisdom, discernment. It's a good thing. Here in Genesis chapter 3, clearly given a negative connotation, but the only time in scripture that it's used negatively. The serpent was the most arum of all of the animals all of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. The author, in verse one, before we get into fall, before we answer questions like who really is this serpent and what is he about and what's he going to do, wants to remind us of something, that God made the serpent. That even before we get into the fall, the tragic fall of humanity, depravity, evil entering into the world, there's a reminder that God is in charge and that God is in control. And even the serpent God made. So there's the story set. A perfect creation. Man in all of those right relationships. God's peace and righteousness and justice and joy in everything. And here comes this Arum little serpent that God had made. Now, we're going to see the tactics of sin. Now, we believe Genesis chapter 3 to be an actual story, an historical story, right, by, uh, with real human beings, Adam and Eve, in a garden. And we believe it also to be a cosmic story, telling the entire story of humanity. And then we also believe it to be an individual story, a cosmic story and an actual story that tells our story, your story. And so as we see here the tactics of sin, the consequences of sin, and God's response to sin, we see that corporately, but we also see it individually for you and for me. And the tactics of sin, the consequences, and the response you'll see, though uh, present in the garden a long, long time ago, are just as real and present today. Evil, sin, still moves as it did then, and God still responds as he did then. Here's the first tactic. E, um, the serpent says to the woman. What's the first tactic? The uh, serpent is trying to subvert the natural order and authority that God had created. And so we see here in Genesis chapter one, God created male. Uh, he created male and female to be co-equals uh, and co-reigners over all of creation. But he created male first, right? Gave man the ability to name woman. And then what does the serpent do? Well, he subverts the authority. He says to the woman, 
instead of speaking to the man. By the way, the man is right there beside him. And so we're going to see that the first failure was man's. Not all failure is sin, though. The first failure is man's. The first sin is Eve's. So with man standing right there, the serpent goes and he begins to slither his way in by subverting authority. For the Christian, this is a reminder to us that God gives authority for our good. It's a reminder that one of the enemy's first tactics is to do anything or to plant anything in us that would get us to rebel against what he has naturally set in place. So when you're in high school, it's your parents, right? <laughs> when you're, uh, or maybe all of life, right? Um, when, uh, when you're uh, an adult, it's your boss, right? Uh, when it's your boss, it's the government and those darn taxes. When it, whatever it is, there's always an authority structure. And the first tactic of sin is to try to get us to throw it off and to not have it anymore. And so this is what the serpent does. And he says this in his second tactic. Did God actually say, and here's his quote, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, if we jumped back, we would see that God did say, don't eat of a particular tree. And so here we see the second tactic of sin, which is to cast doubt upon God. To cast doubt upon God's uh, word and upon what he has said. And this is no different than how you and I would engage in sin today when we begin to ask ourselves questions about, well, what does that verse really mean? Well, how can I manipulate that in such a way that it doesn't actually do what it says it does or what I can do what I want to do, even though the verse says to not do? And we begin to take whatever thought we might have about God or scripture, and we try to cast doubt around it. Why? So as to be able to operate as we want instead of how God intended. So this tactic is alive and well. And so the serpent again slithers in and he just wants to sprinkle a little bit of doubt. This type of doubt, by the way, isn't just um, prevalent when we're doubting God's word. It's every time we doubt his love, every time we doubt forgiveness, every time we doubt that he wants relationship with us, every time that we doubt that he's made us in his image. And this doubt settles over. Now Eve, to her credit, does not give into the doubts. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She corrects him. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. That was correct. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So now Eve passes the second test here. And the serpent is going to try his third tactic, which I would say is the third tactic of sin to this day. Downright deception. And it's downright deception all around one idea. You know what the idea is? Death. Death. See, Eve ended her little statement saying, lest you die. If we eat, if we engage, then death enters in. And the enemy, the serpent, he responds with what? No, you won't. What's the lie? The lie is uh, the belief that sin, disobedience, has no consequence. The lie is the idea that sin and disobedience can be an isolated, just me experience that doesn't affect or impact anything else. The lie is every time we would say, uh, okay, even though God said this, I'm going to do this because God's lying. And so we rebel and we do what it is that we want. The serpent says, no, 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 you won't die. You'll be fine. 
twisting and a, a deception. Uh, and now the deception on, on one level is him saying, okay, so maybe you guys thought you were going to instantly fall over and die and life would be over. And the serpent's saying, no, you won't die. You won't actually physically die. But there's a greater death at play. It's a lesson, by the way, friends. Sin always leads to death. Sin always leads. Something always dies around sin. In the practical, in the natural, something dies. Now, underneath it, fortunately, Christ died a death that, uh, uh, for us to take care of uh, the death in the second level. But in the first level, sin always leads to death. And the lie for us to believe is that we can go on and we can sin and we can do what we want and it won't cause any consequence. It'll be fine. It's just me. No one knows. No, sin always leads to death. Hidden, not hidden. Small, big. Sin, death. Something dies. Pretty bleak. Welcome if it's your first week. You joined us on a great Sunday. We just teach the Bible. This one's a big one. So here we have it. Skip through the story. This time, she engages. So she grabs of what she wasn't supposed to grab. She bites it. She eats it. Gives it to her husband. He eats it. Boom. Sin. Death, despair, everything else happens. Said another way, um, in this moment, humanity is attempting to be something it was never meant to be, which forever stops it from being what it was created to be. I'll say that again. Man attempted in that moment to be something it was never created to be, which stopped it forever from being what it was supposed to be. And so now... We have a world that is broken. And sin has entered in. And I don't have to tell you about the damages of sin because you know it personally. You've known it in your family. You've known it in your life. You've known it in your past. And you know it every time that you hear bad news. But just because this particular chapter is a glutton for punishment, let's just continue and lay out some of the consequences of sin. There will be good news, I promise. Let's look at the consequences. It happens uh, pretty quickly. Uh, the first consequence, it says this, then the eyes of both were opened. The eyes of both were opened. Now, we live in an age that always says enlightenment is a good thing, right? Well, not this kind. Their eyes were opened. In other words, they began to be able to see something that they were never meant to see. Did you ever see something that you uh, thought you wanted to see, but then you saw it and you wish you could unsee it, but now you can't? You can only see it? That's what's happening here. They began to see something that they weren't supposed to see. You say, well, what were they seeing? What does it mean that their eyes were opened? They were seeing now the physical representation, and, and, and now we see the results of sin. And so when you see death, and when you see despair, and when you see pain and agony, when you see the breakdown of people in relationship with God, when you see the breakdown of people in proper relationship with each other, when you see creation now revolting as an enemy against humanity as opposed to something uh, that uh, humanity takes care of and, and creation serving humanity, 
And when you see any environment where there's not peace, righteousness, and joy, now you're seeing something that we were never meant to see. So that was the first consequence. You could see the results and the impact of sin in the world. Second consequence. Verse 8. I'm sorry, no, back in verse seven. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I skipped the line that says, and they knew that they were naked, which must have been a startling recognition. And so there they are. Their eyes are open. They begin to see. The first thing they see is their nakedness, which is, of course, a physical description, but also a spiritual one, uh, that there is a major problem. And so what do they do? Consequence number two, they make fig leaves Consequence number two is this. It is humanity's never-ending attempt to fix their own problem. Let me say that again. Humanity's never-ending struggle to fix what is broken. That's consequence number two. Consequence number two is every time that a human being uh, feels less than what God had created in the garden and thinks, ah, I have a solution and runs down to that solution and tries to fix what's broken inside. It's the struggle. One of these struggles is uh, the way humanity has responded to this is religion. In the garden, actually what they did is they took fig leaves, which were a very temporary thing. Because what would happen as they put the fig leaves on and wore the fig leaves, it temporarily solved the problem, but then they would uh, disappear. The fig leaves would, uh, now the sin had broken and would wither, and then they would have to find more fig leaves, which Adam and Eve lived like 900 years. They would have gone through a lot of fig leaves had this been the solution, which means they would have spent time in their life uh, daily, weekly, however long their fig leaves lasted, making sure that they went back and repeated the pattern of fixing the problem. This is the treadmill that humanity runs on now. My effort to fix a problem. One way we do that is through religion. We think, ah, if I do enough good deeds, that's a good fig leaf. Enough good deeds, that's a fig leaf. And then what happens? Our good deeds wear out. And so we say, well, I'll go do some more, and I'll go do some more, and I'll go do some more. Another response uh, might be uh, not, the, not religion, but irreligion, uh, where instead of trying to fix the problem, the innate problem through religion, we just fix it with irreligion. We'll say, oh, well, I'll do whatever I want to do, and I will pursue peace and joy and happiness however I want. And you might have grabbed it for a fleeting moment until it wasn't anymore. And so then you went and you got some more fig leaves, and you searched for something else, and you ran after something else, and it was just more fig leaves that would eventually disappear. The second consequence is the never-ending struggle to try and fix our own problem. The third consequence, this is verse eight, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the biblical author goes through painstaking detail 
in Genesis 1 and 2 to show trees as good things and God's blessing. And so in chapters 1 and 2, the trees are good. They bring life. They give healing. They're, uh, they're sustenance. Healing, there's nothing broken, but they fed them. They, they provided for them, right? And so Genesis 1 and 2, the trees are always good. Now you get into Genesis 3 and sin has entered into the world. And what are the trees? Now they're used not as a gift or a blessing from God, but as something to hide among. So what are the trees? What's the third consequence? It's every time we take something that is good that God has given us, and instead of using it to bring glory to God, we actually use it as a shield against him. Religion can be this. God gave us things like uh, religious types of activities as a good thing, but what we can do is we can actually use religion as something I hide in. And so I hide in my church attendance. I hide in my church engagement. I hide in my giving. I hide in my serving. And while I'm doing uh, that, I'm hiding in it, thinking, no, this is um, me doing good enough. But what I'm actually doing is stopping God from actually having my heart. And so I'm hiding in my religion so that God doesn't actually get what's inside. Intellect can be a tree. God gave us a brain to think and to see him. Romans tells us ways of thinking get distorted and we begin to think wrongly. And so we actually use our intellect as opposed to drawing us nearer to God to draw us away from him. It's a tree. And we could go through the list of the good things that God has made. And the third consequence is, is taking those good things, distorting them so that they're actually something that conceals us from God instead of draws us near to him. So now we have the tactics and the consequences of sin. And it is as bleak as I am trying to make it seem. What was perfect is now gone. And so the only question remaining is what happens next? What is God's response to sin? Because how God responded to sin first is how God responds to sin now. And so when we see who uh, this God is, and by the way, I mean, Adam and Eve, uh, they know God because you're going to see they spent some time with them, some very close personal time, but they don't know this part of God yet because this is new. They don't know how a perfect God is going to respond to their abysmal failure, to their outright rejection and rebellion against him. When I was growing up, I used to play a lot of PlayStation, PlayStation 1, for those who are keeping score at home. And there was um, the best game, NCAA college football, before all the lawyers got involved and uh, you couldn't play college uh, games, video games anymore. Okay, so back in the good old days, and I would um, play this uh, PlayStation football game, and I was always the University of Toledo uh, because I wanted to see if I could win a national championship with one of the worst teams in the game, okay? And sorry, Rockets. Okay, now, um, here's what I would do. Once I would start the game, okay, uh, if I was like three to four minutes into the game and I threw an interception or the other team scored or something happened that made my stats less than perfect, what would I do? Hit reset. Thank you, PlayStation player. 
right? Now it takes seven minutes to reset a PlayStation 1, okay? Which was like a lot of time, you know, when you're 14 or 24, okay? And so I would hit that and I would start the game over because I didn't want to have an interception on my record. And I certainly couldn't lose the first game of the season and still win the national championship. And so if I was cl- or, or quick enough into the game or early enough into the game or into the season, I would just start over. And I remember like the internal struggle of my young soul that was like, is this okay or not, right? To start over like this, like, am I really cheating the game? Okay. Narratively, we're like, Three chapters out of 1168. God's response to sin could have been reset, give me Bob and Joan. We're starting over. Different story. We're not that far into this. He could have reset it. He could have also just blown it up and start over. These would have been very viable options. He made the whole thing in six days, he could do it again very quickly. How does God respond to sin? How did he corporately respond to sin? How does he respond to sin now? How does he respond to your sin? How does he respond to mine? Because this right here, what we're going to see next, has drastic impact on how we understand God, how we understand the gospel, and how we understand sin in people's lives. How God responds right here is a lesson on how God would act in all of history and how those who would pledge allegiance to him should also act when they see sin. This is not just a story. This is God showing who he is. Verse eight, three responses. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the verb walking there is to depict a physical form that is strolling or meandering. God's first response to sin is to go and to step down into it. When his entire creation is now messed up, his very first response is not to hide, is not to isolate, is not to reset, and it's not to run away. It's to go step into it. First response. Then, as the story continues, God's going to begin to start asking some questions. God is not fact-finding. He knows. He knows everything that's going on. He's going to ask questions. And you know who he's not going to question? The serpent. Why? Because he's not interested in re-engaging in relationship with the serpent. He is going to ask questions of the man and the woman. Where are you? How did this happen? Who did this? And what are these questions geared toward? In mercy and kindness, God leading them to repentance. What's God's response to sin? His first step, 
He goes and engages in it. His second step, he mercifully tries to lead them to repentance. Is this the God you know? Somebody recently described their God to me as the cop behind the billboard with the gun, <laughs> like the, the radar gun, just trying to catch you messing up. This is not the God of Genesis 3. No, he steps into the mess first. He gently leads them to repentance. And then three is like a two-step process. Third thing he does, there's punishment. Why? Because sin always leads to death. Sin always leads to death. And so the first part of his third response is punishment. But look what God writes into his punishment. He can't even get through punishment. He can't even get through what is really the eternal condemnation now of a creation that he created to be perfect and to bring him glory. He can't even get like, like three lines into it without doing this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and, and he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He can't even get through punishment without promising rescue. In the midst of sin, of absolute darkness and no hope, God's response is to step down into it, to lead people to repentance, and to promise a greater rescue. That's how God responds to sin. It's how he responded to it in the beginning and how he responds to it now. You, you think you know a God that is angry, uh, judgmental, and condemning. That's not the God of Genesis 3. Now, let me take this one step further in closing. Every time, every time in the Bible when God shows up in physical form, who is it? It's Jesus. And so let's look at this. What is God's response to sin in the middle of the garden? It's a pre-incarnate Christ coming from heaven down to earth in the middle of it, gently leading the offenders to repentance and looking at them. And Adam and Eve could have never known the gravity of what that figure, that pre-incarnate Christ was saying when he looked at them and said, one day a rescuer will come. One day a rescuer will come and will set all of this right. They could have never known he was looking at them and he was saying, and it's going to be me. And one garden he comes down and he promises rescue. And he's the only one that knew a story about another garden when he would feel the agony and the weight of what Adam and Eve did in the first garden. And so as he sat there, as everything now that was perfect was breaking down, he came to engage in it. He came to restore them and he came to rescue them. And to promise 
the rescue. And this story would be repeated thousands of years later when the consequences of this sin would continue to build and to build and to build. And God, just like he did at the beginning, would choose to go down. And he would choose through kindness to lead people to repentance. And he wouldn't just promise rescue. He would rescue. Genesis 3.15 is known as the proto-evangelism, the first glimpse of the gospel. And is that gospel that is alive today. Friends, what is this supposed to do for us? It's supposed to make us feel the power and the love of his rescue. God doesn't hide and run and get scared from sin. He steps into it. That if you're in sin, God's not running and hiding. He has stepped into the mess of it, and he gently and kindly wants to lead you to repentance and restoration of relationship because he came to rescue you. That's the God of Genesis 3. That's how God first responded to sin. It's how he does today. Let's pray. Thank you so much for checking out this message. If you'd like to know more on our church, you can go to experienceredemption.com.